I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. All parents want their children to have a quality education. Usually, that begins in elementary school, where the building blocks of knowledge are established. Now, we've all heard the proverb, it takes a village to raise a child. Well, as a former educator, I can tell you that it takes a community to educate a child. Neighborhood schools and parents need to have a strong partnership in order for the school to succeed in its ultimate mission, which is to educate students and help them blossom. Two years ago, this kind of partnership at one East Nashville school, Warner Elementary Arts Magnet, was non-existent. But just a mile away, a partnership like this was thriving at another elementary school. WPLN reporter Mariba Knight noticed this difference and made it the focus of WPLN's podcast, The Promise. She joins me now to talk about the podcast's impact and check in on Warner two years later. Mariba, thank you so much for being here. Welcome. Thank this you for is having Nashville. me. I'm so excited to be here two years after this big project. Really happy to have you here with us. So, you know, about an hour to, an hour ago, MNPS, MNPS, pardon me, announced their reward schools and Warner made the list. Yeah. Tell us, what does this mean for Warner? Oh, it's it's so exciting. You know, they have been working towards getting off the priority list for a couple of years now. When I started reporting on them in 2019, uh, they were one of the lowest performing schools in the entire state of Tennessee. They were in the bottom 5%. They were struggling with enrollment. They were struggling with test scores. They had just a few students, like three students proficient in math and mm. six students proficient in language, arts, and um, what they call um, that. Uh, sorry. But they were just so few kids that were succeeding on paper, you know, mm. according to the state. And they we're working hard to turn this around and I wanted to follow that journey. And so to see them now, two years later, be able to be a reward school, which means they've had such growth. They are on this trajectory that only a few percentage, you know, 5% of the top schools in the state have. So it means that um, there's a whole bunch of stuff that went into this metric and, and Principal Gibbs can talk about that. But really, it's that they are just shooting for the stars and they're headed that way. Like they are improving their scores. They have upped their enrollment. They are one of the top schools in Tennessee. We're going to have Principal Ricky Gibbs on the show later on this hour. But, you know, how unlikely is it that a school can make such a quick 180 degree turnaround in two years? I mean, it's really unusual. Like we've had this happen with Napier Elementary. That's a wonderful example of, of a school that turned around from priority status to reward status. It took them about three years. But the thing about Warner that's so special and spectacular is let's remember what was thrown into the middle of this, COVID. Mm -hmm. I went in there 2019, 2020 school year thinking I was going to document a typical nine-month uh, school year, although not typical because they were striving to get off this priority list and to be this top performing school that nobody thought they could be. And right in the middle of that, we had the biggest upset in public education we've ever seen in our lifetime. And they had to work through that. They had to work through kids not having access to computers and internet and not coming to school. And so that's unbelievable that they have managed to execute the goal that they set out to execute in a really short amount of time and do it with the disruption of COVID-19. That is just amazing. 
Okay, so Warner is a big focus of season two of WPLN's podcast, The Promise, which you hosted and produced. At the time, Warner's student body was almost entirely African-American, and it was failing. But then about a mile away, there's Lachlan Elementary School, which was almost entirely white students, and it was known as a great school. Tell me, how did this first catch your attention? Well, I had been doing a lot of reporting in Casey Homes, which is the public housing complex that Warner serves. And I had noticed where kids went to school. Um, And then I had also, uh, into my reporting, heard about a movement of parents, white parents at Lachlan Elementary that were upset with the fact that the school had been um, really struggling to recruit and retain students of color. And it just struck me as, you know, this is in essence the story of this country. Uh, There are two realities for people and families and children, and there are two sets of systems. And while all of the children at Lachlan uh, were zoned to Warner, if they lived in that priority zone, um, they weren't going there. Right. And while all the students who go to Warner could be in the priority zone for Lachlan, they weren't going there. So it was really a fundamental question of why is this happening and what does this, you know, reveal about our country, our city and our education system? In the podcast, you talk with Brandy Ferguson, Fenderson, pardon me, and she's white and her daughter Ella is biracial with a black father. Let's listen to her talk about this divide. So her kindergarten year, there were um, Ella and one other uh, child of color in the class of 20 students, so two out of 20. And then in the next school year, she was the only one in her classroom of color. Brandy happened to work with a lot of kids from Warner at a literacy nonprofit she managed in the neighborhood. And what she saw in her daily commute from Lachlan to Warner left her troubled. It just felt disturbing to me. We, w- we would drive one mile down Woodland Street to my work from her school. And we would go from a world of white children to a world of black children, one mile apart, but not attending the same school. And then things got a little intense with Lachlan parents, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, they, um, I think we've seen a lot of this uh, when we talk about, I mean, I'll be bold, white fragility, um, Uh, centering whiteness, hoarding resources. I think a lot of white progressive families don't want to see themselves as the problem. Um, And in this case, they were taking resources and they were keeping them in one place. And there were almost no students of color that were being served by those resources. Lachlan was one of the best schools in the state, in the country. It had been a blue ribbon school. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, surely we can be better than this. Season two of The Promise begins with the fallout from the 1954 Brown versus Board of Education ruling that desegregated schools across the country, something that city officials and white parents in Nashville strongly resisted. Why did you decide to start there? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that because this story is all about history. History is so critical to understanding where we've come from and why we're here. And I noticed that there was really general amnesia around the story of desegregation in Nashville, at least among the white people and the city's leadership. They were, I don't think they could really tell, you know, 
the story of public education and admit to the fact that white families had resisted this and that the city at large had resisted this. And I didn't feel like I could tell the story without first laying the groundwork of history and how revisionist we've been around it and how mightily black families fought for equity, just as the city and the racist white people here did everything possible to push back. I just felt we can't understand where we're at unless I thoroughly over two episodes, Mm. like methodically lay out just how hard it was to get to where we were. Can you break down briefly like how schools were desegregated, but then through these moves from city officials and parents, they were resegregated? Yeah. So, I mean, board uh, Brown versus Board of Education, the decision came down in 1954. Uh, The city just drug its feet. And it wasn't until A.Z. Kelly filed a lawsuit uh, with his son, Robert Kelly, and a number of other plaintiffs that said, we want to desegregate these schools. That was in 1955. They still didn't. Uh, In 1957, they finally decided we will do this one grade at a time. That meant it was going to happen so slowly that, you know, Kelly's son, Robert, would never actually see a desegregated school. Mm -hmm. And so, They just went into this kicking and screaming and white families responded in kind. They fled the system. They went to the outskirts where, you know, these uh, desegregation policies didn't extend uh, for for a period of time. They, you know, a lot of the private schools that we have in the city look back at when they started. Mm -hmm. They all came in the wave of desegregation. White families wanted to pay more than they wanted to integrate. They would have paid for their kid to get an education if it meant they didn't have to go to school with black children. And so this was just, I mean, the lawsuit lasted 43 years. That should tell you how long it took this city. It's a very long time. <laughs> yeah. In 2017, MNPS received a considerable amount of, uh, of money and a federal grant. Can you explain what that grant is and how it applies to Warner? Yeah, so Warner got uh, this magnet grant. It's essentially, uh, magnet grants are really the only mechanism the federal government has to desegregate schools right now. Um, Basically, they flood a segregated school, which they like to sanitize with the language uh, subgroup isolation instead of segregated. Uh, But that's what it is. Um, They flood it with money for a finite amount of time, and they try to boost its programming so that white families will come. This is the more appealing scenario than busing. People Mm -hmm. have already, you know, Mm -hmm. said what they have to say about busing. It is not a popular thing for many families. But the thing that I found so frustrating about this grant in general was just how much it centered whiteness as a solution for the problem. But the numbers show that the more integrated our schools are, the better everybody does. So schools need to be diverse. And while busing doesn't work, the other thing the federal government has to offer is money to create a school uh, that can hopefully recruit those white families that are missing from it. Okay. Now, in season two of The Promise, you talk with a teacher at Warner, Miss Angela Moore, who's been there for more than 30 years. Long time. She told you that there was something that just didn't sit right with her about this money coming in. Let's listen. Are you investing in these kids or are you investing in the kids to come? You know, um, we have a wonderful fuse lab. It's a science lab, brand spanking new. She points down the hall toward the new lab filled with 3D printers and computers. There's also a brand new dance studio, like the real deal, with a sprung floor and walls of mirrors. No other school in the district has one. It's all thanks to the federal magnet money. 
are we selling it to these kids, the kids that are here now? Or are we selling it to the parents that are coming in that we want to recruit their child to be here? You know, what did you think of her question? Even with all that's improved at the school, does it still feel relevant? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you do have to ask that question. Who are we serving? The thing that I want to highlight about this moment of it getting this reward status is that this is such a victory for Warner because not only did they work really hard, they did it with the support and resources, but they did it. They started to do it before any new white families came into that school. And I think it proves that what you need to do is support and fund public education. Now, they have lots of new white students. It's amazing. Their enrollment has doubled. But they were on track with this rapid improvement that year that I went in to report on it. They started to hit the ball out of the park. And obviously, COVID intercepted that, so we couldn't get the numbers. But they were doing all of it before white students ever walked in the door. So I think that says something about how you invest and who you invest in. Mariba Knight is a senior reporter at WPLN. She hosted and produced the Peabody Award-winning season two of the impactful podcast, The Promise. Mariba, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me, Khalil. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we will invite a few partners, parents, pardon me, to join the conversation and to talk about their experiences of Warner and Lachlan Elementary Schools. Do you have a child who is past or is a past or present student of Warner? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil E. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Two years ago, Warner Elementary Art Magnet School was one of the lowest performing schools in the state of Tennessee, in the bottom 5%. It was also extremely under-enrolled, but the school hired a new principal and used using federal grant money started on an ambitious plan to turn things around. Last hour, Metro Nashville Public Schools announced this year's reward schools. Those are the schools on the opposite end of that spectrum, and Warner Elementary was one. I'm here at Amclay Elementary School in the school library where we just finished up a press conference. 48 schools, that's the highest number ever, are now designated as reward schools, which means that they are high achieving. And fewer schools than the last time are on the priority school designation, which indicates that they were struggling. Um, Two of the schools that are now known as uh, reward schools were previously in that struggling category. One of them is Warner Arts Magnet. They went from that struggling designation just a few years ago to now being some of the top in the district. So really impressive. Uh, One of the other principals here from Amqui, which also went from priority to reward, said that a big component of that change was the ability to reduce the number of disciplinary issues that took students out of the classroom. That was WPLN's Alexis Marshall on the scene of that press conference. As she mentioned, that's good news for the 48 schools and especially the tremendous turnaround for Warner. Joining me now to talk about what this means for parents of kids at Warner is Aaron Mock, who has a kindergartner and a second grader there. Aaron, 
Welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you for having me. Such a pleasure to have you with us. Now, tell me, when you made the decision to send your kids to Warner, it was still struggling. What went into that choice? A few things. We knew our, when we were looking at schools, our priority wasn't necessarily test scores or school ratings. We knew that we wanted our children to be in a school that looked like the neighborhood they grew up in. It looks, it reflected the city they're growing up in, the country. Um, And then we also knew that we really, really wanted our children to, we we were hoping for black educators, which was a big part for us and choosing a school for our children. Um, We wanted them to see black people in positions of power and in positions of leadership. And so, you know, Warner kind of ticked those boxes. And on top of it, you know, I have to say, I I talked to my my friend Heather, one of her kiddos was at Warner, and she said, you know, she's so happy there. She's so cared for and loved there. And that was huge to us. We wanted our children to not just get an education, but to be loved and appreciated. Mm-hmm. How, how did people in the community, your neighbors, mm-hmm. how did they respond to your decision? I would say a lot of fellow white parents were shocked. They kind of felt like there were only two school options for us to send our kiddos to as, as white kiddos. Um, and I mean, I even remember when we were first buying in East Nashville, I had a coworker at the time say, oh, you're buying in East Nashville, you must not want to have kids. Mm. And I was like, what does that mean? Oh, yes, mm. we'd like to have children. And she was like, oh, you can't, you can't send your kids to schools in East Nashville. And I was like, no, what you're saying is, you don't think I should send my, I can send white kids to school in East Nashville. Mm. And that really was just like, sh- that was even before I had children. Like that was so shocking to me. So there was just a lot of, I mean, even when I went to the enrollment center to start the process, um, of registering my son Truman, um, I walked in and she said, uh, the enrollment center person said, oh, are you here for Lachlan? And I was like, "Wow, no, I'm here for Warner, <laughs> you know? Like, yeah. yeah. So what do you think is their motivation behind such comments? <sighs> A lot. I mean, I, I mean, Maribus said it before. I, I, I think you can be a very progressive person and a progressive voter and have a Black Lives Matter sign on your front lawn and still not really follow through with those ideals. There's this, I think there's this perception among white parents, regardless of their politics of like, our children deserve cushion and comfort and they can't feel discomfort. We can't let them feel discomfort. That's on the other kids. Mm. And I don't think they want to admit that. I don't think that they, you know, maybe they don't even cognitively understand like that's what they're doing. But I think it stems from that big time is just that, oh, my kiddos can't feel uncomfortable. What if they feel uncomfortable being one of the only white kids? And it's like, well, what about traditionally the kiddos who the black kiddos who have been the only black kids? Like, I, I just don't think that they like think that whole process through. So you're getting all these comments. Yes. Getting these opinions. Mm-hmm. What was your response to all of that? Well, I will say, so if they came at me from the angle of, well, have you seen the scores? You know, it's blah, blah, I would just say, hey, listen, my kiddos, they have a mom. They're going to get an education no matter what, right? Like they're going to learn to read and write. They're going to learn to do mathematics. They have a mom and dad who drag them to museums and make them read books. And right. So mm-hmm. like. I'm not worried about that. What I'm worried about 
is my two white sons growing up with a horrendous sense of entitlement. And so if my kiddo has to sit in a kindergarten, first grade, whatever classroom, and he has to have patience with a child of color who's perhaps moved here from another country and and English isn't their first language, and my son can show them grace and can show them patience, that's the education that that's what I want for them. And so I would come at it from that angle. So I'm not worried necessarily about, you know, stats, if you will. Um, And then the other thing was I would just kind of challenge them. Why wouldn't my, why wouldn't he be able to go at Warner? Why would you think he wouldn't be safe at Warner? What's your concerns? And I think when you kind of present it that way, like what do you think is going to happen to him? Right. There would kind of be this shock of like, uh, (laughs) they didn't really have an answer. Mm. And so, I mean, and that's the approach I think we've continued to take. I'd like to bring in our next guest. Willie Sims is a father who spent time at Warner as a substitute teacher and had an older daughter who attended the school years ago. He currently has a fourth grader at Lockland Elementary. Willie, thanks so much for being with us. How you doing, Khalil? I'm doing all right, my man. How about you? Man, I'm doing good, man. Fantastic. Now, your youngest child has been at Lockland since kindergarten. Did you ever consider sending her to Warner? Not at all. Not even for a second. Until, and she's actually fifth grade now, so she's out of Lachlan. Okay. But until she was about in third grade and I went over to Warner, I was like, oh, snap. They got magic going on over here. If she wasn't already at Lachlan, like, if that was her kindergarten year, she would have been going to Warner. You would have made the switch. For sure. What was that motivation behind that that Man, idea? I went, I went and worked at Warner one day and... I remember being in them hallways when it was like dangerous grounds for them couple years when they switched the principals and mm-hmm. made it go crazy. It was a good school. They switched the principals up, the good old gentrified switch, and then it got terrible. And then when I went back years later, it was I never seen nothing like it. I went and found uh the principal, I found Ricky Gibbs and was like, hey man. What is you doing over here? I ain't never seen, I never ever seen that big of a switch in the same kids. So some of the same kids who maybe have been in kindergarten when I was there, maybe it was fourth grade then, mm-hmm. I was blown away. Now, your daughter was the only black child in her kindergarten class at Lachlan, right? Kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, they got another black kid, but yep. Did that shock you? It did the first time I realized that's what was going on. And then, like I said on the podcast, I remember Heather came to me like, okay, we about to... We're about to do this and, you know, try to make a switch, make something uh, happen. And I was like, I'm not getting involved in that. I'm not about to uh, put my blackness all up in the mix and make it even weirder for my daughter being the only black kid. But Mm. Heather was so real. She was so real. And I was like, okay. Well, that was before I realized she was the only black kid in the first grade at that time. And once I realized she was the only black kid, I was like, dang, okay, I'm going to go ahead and get down with them. But really, it's still a white problem. You know what I'm saying? Like, what's going on in Lachlan? That's white people got to fix that. Black people can't fix this. Now, you mentioned that you didn't want to put added pressure on your daughter since she was the only African-American child in this class. And it's kind of, you know, speaking a little bit to what Aaron was saying about, you know, white kids having to be able to feel 
uncomfortable and being different and in the one being, you know, in, in a different group, so to speak. Yeah. How did your daughter reflect upon that? Man, she told me some wild stories over the times, just like things that kids might have said or that was told to her. I I think she's good. Like when Heather was saying, she was wanted the kids to have more diversity. And I, in my mind, I'm like, y'all are my diversity. We super black at home. She got black family, black friends. We She get a lot of blackness. Mm-hmm. Y'all are whiteness. You know what I'm saying? So we cool. But, yeah, I heard some interesting stories. She told me some crazy things that I bet parents wouldn't know that their kids were saying. We never even did nothing with it. We just told her how to deal with it and, you know, let America be America. Now, when you were substituting at Warner, first tell me what sparked your interest in doing that, and then what did you discover and learn from that experience? What sparked my interest, I was in New York trying to move my family up there, and— my daughter had got switched from, she went to Ross Elementary in third grade, which is now a pre-K, and they made all the kids go to a different elementary school. And she was the only one that ended up going to Warner. It was a cool school. It was cool. The principal over there, she was, it, it wasn't the best school ever, but it wasn't a bad school. Then, during that year, third, fourth grade year, I'm talking to her, and her grades are slipping, and I'm thinking, she tripping, you know? And mm-hmm. I come back. Man, I go up in that school, man, it was like dangerous grounds. Kids slamming doors, skipping class. Elementary kids. Picture dangerous ground with elementary kids. Wow. You mean you mean that Michelle Pfeiffer movie? For sure. Dangerous Coolio. Minds. Yeah, okay. Okay, all of them. Yeah. All of them. Dangerous Minds, Lean on Me. <laughs> it was wild before okay. Joe Clark. Okay. You know, Ricky yeah. Gibbs is like the real-life Joe Clark because it was going crazy. But these kids were decent the year before, it was just a switch up of this principle and whatever they was doing to, you know, I mean, the school is a beautiful school, beautiful location. At some point, it will be gentrified. That's the, it's happening. You know what I'm saying? And them kids in Casey, Casey can't be there forever. They about to expand the Titan Stadium. That real estate worth more than the people on it in the minds of the place. So it's a lot of moving parts to the whole thing. Mm. And it was buck wild. But then I seen what Ricky Gibbs did, and I got a new appreciation for administrators. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Lake-Alona. We're talking this hour about season two of The Promise with parents whose children are currently students at both Warner Elementary School and a former student at Lachlan Elementary, which is featured in the podcast. Now, Aaron, Mm -hmm. so you decided to send your kids over to Warner, even though some members of the community suggested that it was a poorly performing school. You should find somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Now, here we stand two years later. Warner has made a tremendous turnaround. How do you feel about your decision? I We love our decision. Our kids are thriving. They love it. Um, and, yeah, I mean, we are just so thankful that w- we found Warner. And, and, I, and I partially want to say, I think partially why they aren't thriving isn't just that it's a fantastic education and they're wonderful educators at Warner because Dr. Gibbs and his staff do an outstanding job. But I think they also support and love those kids emotionally. I mean, I think they just think of everybody's kind of needs and say, what is, if we want our children to do well on a a spelling test, how do we have to support them like emotionally too? And so they're just so loved and comfortable. And we're so thankful that we're at Warner. It's interesting to me because it's like parents have to self desegregate 
mm-hmm. the schools, it seems like. Yes. And, and I would like to, I, I mean, yes, I, like you, have started volunteering at Warner. I've also taken on like a, a kiddo um, through virtual tutoring. And what I wish thoroughly, it's like when I, I'm going to use Lachlan Springs as the example, just because we've been talking about it. But if you're a middle-class privileged white woman like me who gets to stay home, then you need to spend your time or just, to, you know, I mean, I mean, just mean a little teeny bit mm-hmm. of your time volunteering at our public schools and not just the one that supports your kids. Okay. Mm-hmm. Like there's enough of us that can cover Metro schools, both right in your community and a little bit outside of. And if the problem I think with a school like Lachlan is you had all of the moms like me with all of our time and attention, right? And they could just hive mind and and swoop into this school. So the school, not only is the staff there, but now they have this really amazing, you know, community of moms and dads who can just like rush in. And it's like, you need to spread that out. You need to take that to other schools. And, and it's like you said, like segregation and racism, it's not a black people problem. It's a white people problem. That's not us. So you need to go spend an hour out of your time. And I know we're all tired because we're like parents, but you need to go spend an hour of your time at a school that doesn't just benefit your child. And I don't know. That's my soapbox. <laughs> Willie, how do, you, how do you respond to Aaron's soapbox? That's real. I, I agree with it completely. It's just really interesting. When when my oldest daughter was going to Warner, <clears throat> excuse me, y'all, when my oldest daughter was going to Warner, there was not a PTO. Hmm. We started a dad's group, and it was about six of us just trying because there is nobody staying at home. Somebody got to go to work. It might be one parent. It's a lot of situations. I remember coming to school some days and teachers would be in there crying because some of the kids going through some stuff, but it was set out day. The day that they found out such and such them was getting kicked out of Casey mm-hmm. and this is their family. So the kids dealing with this, they learning that morning, but they mm-hmm. got to come to school. Mm-hmm. They dealing, man, them kids at Warner, was dealing, have been through more tragic real events than all the teachers at Lachlan put together. Mm-hmm. Ten kids, I bet, at Warner have been through more real-life tragic, for real, for real things than all of the teachers and parents put together. And it's just interesting. It's no understanding. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And I love Lachlan. You know what I'm saying? Lachlan was a great school. You know what I'm saying? Put, make sure I put that on the record. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Principal Lewis doing her thing. Them teachers care about them kids. It's a beautiful situation, but they got the super support system. I understand what you're saying. As I, when I was a teacher in the past, I worked at a school in Los Angeles for kids who got kicked out of high school. I grew I grew up in the suburbs of Baltimore. Didn't grow up rich by any means, but here I am educating 14 year olds who had lives generations deep in gangs and other things. It gave me an understanding, and I realized here I was at 30-some years old, and I hadn't been through a quarter of what these 14-, 15-year-olds had been through. It gave me a lot of understanding and an increased amount of patience and and empathy for them, and that's what I tried to give. Now, saying that, you know, we set examples for children. That's one thing. Getting adults to take action is another. Erin, I'm curious, what do you think of the impact of the podcast? I mean, I, I, I think it did make a lot of parents reflect on, hey, are we aligning what we say are our values 
and are we turn and are we showing that to our community? You know, I really think it had that moment of, hmm, well, why wouldn't I send my child to a majority black school? Hmm. I need to I need to question what that is within me that kind of throws my hands up and go, oh, gosh, I don't know about that. Well, what what is that? And I really do think that the impact of the podcast, I hope, made some people kind of reevaluate what they say they believe in and then their actions. Mm. Willie, what's the impact real quick? Uh, Real quick. I think that. I don't know. I'm not sure about the impact of the podcast, but I know a lot of people, it touched a lot of people. Mm-hmm. It made them think. But I always question, you know, you got to show me, you know what I'm saying, the the good quality East Nashville liberal white people. You know, I love them. See them in five points, getting pizza, all of that. But when it comes down to people's kids, you get to see what really matters. It's mm-hmm. different what you say and the sign you put up and then what you do with your kids because everybody wants their kids to have the best. So we're going to see, man. We're going to see what's going on. That is Willie Sims. He has two of his children attended Lachlan Elementary and Warner Arts Elementary, um, Warner Elementary Arts Magnet School. He was shared, He was joined by Aaron Mock, who is the mother of two students at Warner Elementary Arts Magnet School. Thanks to you both so much for being here. Thank you. I love you, man. Love you, too. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll meet the principal behind the dramatic turnaround at Warner Arts Magnet School and a parent who helped form a community of support. Did you attend Warner Elementary Arts Magnet School? What was it like when you were in school? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil Kalona, and this is Nashville. He's singing. Every time. What do you mean every time? Every time we do morning meetings, this is what he does. He gets up there and sings and dances with them. It's every time. We're back at Warner Elementary. It's a Friday assembly in the spring of 2019. A very different time, I know. Kids are filing into the school auditorium. Some sit cross-legged on the floor, bopping their heads and singing to the music, talking with their friends. As they settle in, the school's principal, Ricky Gibbs, lip syncs and dances. He does the lean back, the shoulder bounce, the whip. He flashes a smile. The kids love it. There is so much energy in this room, but it also feels cavernous. The 30-foot ceilings, the massive stage, they seem to swallow this tiny school, such a big space, and so few kids. Thankfully, though, it doesn't sound empty. Not at all. Good afternoon, boys and girls. Warner is working mightily to up its enrollment. It's in the midst of a huge push coupled with a surge in resources to try to recruit new families to come here, specifically new white families. I'm serious. This is explicitly stated in the federal grant Warner is getting for all this because the school has become so isolated with black children that in the eyes of the feds and the policy wonks, it needs these white kids to balance it out to desegregate it. But the perception for most white families here 
has been that Warner is one, if not the, least desirable schools in the neighborhood. Go to greatschools.com and you'll see why. Warner has a, quote, very concerning rating and a one out of a possible 10 on its test scores. This school is far below the state average, it reads. This suggests that students at this school are likely not performing at grade level. So most white parents shopping around for a school will read that and run the other direction. Or worse. <laughs> there you go. Miss Bain, a first grade teacher, has taught at Warner for 23 years. And she's heard some things from folks in the neighborhood. You know, I've had instances on the playground with neighborhood people. Oh, our kids are zoned for there. We will, I will never send my kids to that school. Point blank to your face. And Knowing you're a teacher here? Yes. And saying it on the playground to me in front of kids. I've had that happen numerous times in East Nashville. That was from season two of the WPLN podcast, The Promise. And in 2019 was definitely a different time in a lot of ways. Joining me now to talk about how Warner got from there to today is the singing principal himself, <laughs> Ricky Gibbs. Now, look, I know you hustled all the way from that press conference, so thank you so much for being here. Welcome hey, to no, This Is Nashville. No problem. My pleasure. Excited to be here. Really happy to have you. So first off, how you feeling today? You know, I've, I've been asked that question a couple times. Proud. I, mm. I think that's the the biggest one. Uh I went through the excitement and the, hey, this is really happening, but it's really a culmination uh, of a lot of work and a lot of energy that's been put together from a lot of people. And I'm just, I'm proud to say that I've had, most people will say, well, you've led the work. I genuinely see it as I've had the honor of being a part of what has been a life-changing process for not only our scholars, but the educators, as well as the whole East Nashville community. And it's interesting you say that because I want to, you know, give people an understanding of the relationship between a school and its community. What were the things, what were things like when you first started at Warner? We were disconnected. Uh, we were a school that had 170 students. It was a school that had a lot of discipline uh, and it was it had isolated itself from the entire community. I oftentimes tell educators that our work need to be uh, dispelling what I call the biggest lie ever told in education. And ed in education, we get uh, all of our new teachers and we say, if you want to change a child's life, don't worry about what happens outside your four walls. Mm -hmm. Only worry about what you're doing in your classroom, because that's all you can control. And I think the school embodied that and believed that. And when I got there and I, I told the team, poverty doesn't stop at our door. Hunger doesn't stop at our door. Anger, depression, anxiety, none of those things stop at our door. So by cutting off the community, we're cutting off some of our greatest supporters into really transforming our children's lives. So when we said, when we talked about educating our scholars, it was about educating the whole scholar. Yes, we're going to ensure that you get the academic outcomes when you're at school, but let's also talk about how the community can support us. Let's talk about how we're going to support you and your parents at home, because ultimately we wanted to make sure that we really put those wraparound services in place to ensure that our scholars were successful, not only at Warner, but when they leave us as well. Did you have a difficult time getting parents involved when you took that approach? You know, the the the, exci the exciting part was it wasn't that hard. 
Um, and this is my challenge. This is my task to educators. It's only difficult to get parents involved when parents genuinely see you don't really care about their child, that you're just there. Uh, when parents saw that I legitimately had a deep invested interest in seeing their children succeed, they were ready to support me. But it took me reaching out. Uh, oftentimes, as school leaders, we wait and say, well, parents don't show up. I took on the approach, if you don't come to me, as the young people say, I'm going to pull up. Mm-hmm. I'm going to come to you. <laughs> like So I'm going to come to you and figure out what we need to do to ensure that we can work together. Because ultimately, me and my team were uniquely qualified in instruction and pedagogy. We understand that our families are uniquely qualified to genuinely understand their children. So when we take our knowledge of education, their knowledge of their babies, we put that together, we made magic through the power of a great education. My next guest is Heather Wood. She was featured in The Promise and currently has a kindergartner at Warner. Heather, thanks so much for joining us today. Hi. Now, you already had a child at Lachlan. Why did you choose to send your youngest to Warner instead? Okay, so my youngest is in kindergarten. The one I sent to Warner is now in third grade. grade. Okay, okay. And then I have one who is still at Lachlan in fifth grade. Okay. Yeah. Three. So (laughs) why choose to send one of your kids to Yeah, so um, when my son was at Ross for pre-K, Nia, Will's daughter, was his one of his best friends in pre-K, and I kind of did, you know, the talking to all the parents. Where's your kid going to kindergarten? Um, And he and a few other a few other Warner parents said, Warner used to be a great school. There was a time when it was a great school. It's not a great school right now. We're not sending our youngest there or we're passing on it or whatever. Um, so we didn't send Oscar. We sent him to Lockland and Nia too. Um, and then Marion went to Ross as well, like two years later. Um, you know, and like Oscar, she was, it was a very integrated class. You know, maybe, I don't know, she was in the minority, but she didn't have that many white friends in her class. She had some, but it was, it would have been a real weird shock to her system, I think, to go from her classroom at Ross to Lachlan, just like it had been for Oscar, because mm-hmm. Oscar and Nia, it took them one week to be like, it's all pink people. Where are all the rest of them? Mm-hmm. We didn't want to do that again. <laughs> so um, Lachlan, you know, we live down the street, but Warner is our zone school. And so I thought it's time I toured it because I didn't even tour it the first time. I just went on what everybody told me. Um, And so when I toured it, it was really quiet. It was just really quiet. It was, you know, it's not like you saw something bad there. It's what you didn't see there. Just there weren't enough kids, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, you could tell that some of the teachers were good teachers who really wanted to be there, who were teaching. And then some you could tell that they just like couldn't get a job at other places. Um, and we, but we had Oscar had some friends from Ross who were there. Um, and I saw them and I just thought, I don't, you know, I don't want to send my kid to a school that's not functioning. But on the other hand, like this school is not going to function super well if everybody who has the option keeps walking past it. Um, so how is your son doing at Warner now? 
my daughter who's in third grade. Yes, your daughter. Yeah. How's, she, how's she doing? Uh, good. Great. I mean, she's only ever been there. So yeah. it's her whole, you know, her whole life, her whole social life is there. And I understand you volunteered at Warner, right? For a short time before she went there, I volunteered. Um, we actually, you know, sent we enrolled her before Dr. Gibbs got there. I think the one thing that the podcast people didn't understand was that they thought that we kind of like met Dr. Gibbs and sort of like followed him off in the sunset. Like this, <laughs> this is this visionary, you know, nationally renowned principal. And of course, like at that point, it wouldn't have been a big, hard choice, right? Because the second he walked in, I was like, oh, I don't even need to worry about this anymore. But before that, he wasn't there. And we decided to do it anyway. Um and when he got there, you know, I mean, you look at him and you're like, no, no baby is going to be left behind and all mm -hmm. the babies are going to learn all the things. So um, I volunteered there. Yeah, um, a little bit. But Marion was in kindergarten when COVID shut the schools down. So I really was only there for a short time. Now, Principal Gibbs, you know, let's let's talk a little bit about your plan. I want to I want to play you a little bit of tape from the podcast. Okay, it's from the last episode when everything had been up upended. Yeah, it was April 2020. A tornado had torn through the city and the neighborhood. Yeah. COVID nineteen had shuttered schools. Budgets were being slashed. Warner lost about two hundred thousand dollars from its budget, mm. which laid off and put key programs like dance and mindfulness at risk. In other words, the stuff that was having a huge impact on mm -hmm. kids. And also enticing white families to enroll were kind of being lost. Yeah. You're speaking about this to your staff over Zoom. Let's listen. You have to be around me when I get into a funk. Like, I don't get into funks often, but I was pissed last week. And when I get pissed, I kind of shut off from the outside world. I was at my breaking point. I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm tired of fighting for kids. Like, you one person can't just consistently carry that burden on top of everything else that's going on. Cause I was at a point I was like, I was going to say y'all can have Warner. Like I'm just, this, this is, this is too much. Principal Gibbs, take me back to that moment in 2020. What were you feeling? Man, it was a dark place. Actually, even listening to it, it brings back those emotions because I, I knew what we were fighting for and we were so close at that point. Like That was a time where every predictor that we would we were taking academically had us blowing all of our goals out of the water. We had so much momentum, and then it was like we hit a wall, and every time— I wanted to go right. Somebody built another wall and you would go left another wall. And it was just one that I, I was getting into that, that, that funk, that dark space. Um, but luckily, um, just like with, I, I'll try to be that person for our teachers, parents and staff. I had other educators who uh, were my thought partners at that time. Um, our, one of our, our chief, she's our chief now, Renita Perry. She was one of those people that was, Hey, Ricky, I need you to think of it this way. Think of it that way. Mm -hmm. Um, and when it was able to help pull me out of that space, uh, because ultimately what I've realized how I go, my team goes. Um, so it was, I could stay in that space and feel sorry for me or I feel sorry for myself, or I can figure out ways to innovate and push my team to come out of that space as well. And I think we were able to do that, which got us to a day like today where we're we're here celebrating some amazing news that our, our school community received. You know, um, 
Heather, mm-hmm. you know, what's not, you know, with schools, not all schools have podcasts made about them, but is there anything you think folks on the outside don't understand about Warner even to this day? Um, you know, I think, uh, well, first of all, I think you have to kind of drive past it. I mean, just like a week ago, a parent friend of mine from Lachlan said, you know, something, you know, one of the things I hear, you know, you're so brave for sending your, you know, white <laughs> child to a high poverty, all black school, you know, and I was like, it, I wouldn't describe it that way anymore. Even, even when the podcast was, um, airing, I felt like there was a little bit of a perception that every kid at Warner lived in the Casey homes and in Marion's kindergarten class, only one of them actually lived there. So there have always been like, you know, working class people and just people who grew up around Warner going there. Um, you know, there's a lady on the PTO who went there herself. And um, I have, I, you know, now that I've, now that we've been there for a few years, I know other people who grew up there and went there and, you know, it's been there obviously for like a hundred years. So, um, you know, I think it's easy to lose sight of that. The fact that there are all these layers, there were really good principals. There were principals who really struggled. Um, you know, there was a time where it was like an all white school. There was a time where it was an all black school. There was a time where the middle class black people kind of started sending their kids to charters. I mean, it's, it's a whole history mm-hmm. that you would have to really talk to people like, you know, my friend, Miss Mayo, who's on the PTO, Miss Bain, yeah. um, in order to know that, you know, but I would say, uh, you got to kind of walk in the door to see what it is now. And it's not Lachlan, but it's not, um, what I think a lot of people think it is either. We got about 30 seconds left. Principal Gibbs. How about you? What do you want people to know? Uh, I wanted to know that the business is booming. When we started the podcast, we had 170 students. Now we're at 419. We started as a level one school. Now we're a level five Tennessee reward school. So it's one that the community is supporting. Our families are supporting. We have amazing educators and scholars that show up and show out every day because they understand that the only way to change lives is through the power of a great education. That is Ricky Gibbs, principal of Warner Elementary Arts Magnet School in East Nashville. He was joined by Heather Wood, mother of Warner students. Thanks again to both of you for being on the show today and to keep on up with your important work. Really appreciate it. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. Tomorrow, we present a Citizen Nashville answering your questions about monkeypox. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harush and Rose Gilbert. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Amir Blade. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at thisisnashville. Find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ekelona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other.